Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, Lisa Bramitz and Tom Keenan, we digress and we digress to corporate management and moving forward in this pandemic. Anthony Capuano is with Marriott. The CEO and Tony Capiano out of Cornell Hotel has had the toughest task in management of any corporate officer in America filling the shoes of the great Arne Sorensen. I'm going to go to Cornell Hotel and Arne Sorensen, life is service. How have you managed this tough task? Well, I had the first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. In person, in studio, uh, I had the good fortune of working with Arnie for almost a quarter of a century. I think the easiest way to manage through the grief that that the right. Marriott family has experienced is to honor his legacy by continuing all the great work he had done and continuing the company down the path that he had set forth for us. Cornell Hotel didn't have a course, Pandemic 101. What they may you, now. What, they may now. What have you learned? A few things. I think I've learned how valuable our culture is. I've found how resilient and adaptable our people are around the world. I've learned how much people miss travel. And I've learned how responsive we need to be to these sorts of crises. Mm -hmm. We had to not only stabilize the company's balance sheet in a matter of weeks, but roll out all new operating and and, um, cleanliness protocols in 133 countries around the world Mm -hmm. in a matter of weeks. Tony, how difficult is it to hire enough personnel to meet the incredible demand of people who do want to get back on the road? It varies by market, Lisa. In the the markets here in the U.S. where we've seen demand spike most rapidly, California, Texas, Florida, it is challenging. And we're competing for labor not only with other hospitality and travel companies, but with those industries that have thrived, some of the online retailers and the like. Uh, We really have to be much more proactive and deliberate about reminding folks about the appeal and the opportunities that exist in travel and tourism. Meanwhile, as we're dealing with a number of supply chain kinks and certainly uh, labor market frictions, we're also dealing with a different international backdrop. And we had uh, President Biden come out and warn companies about doing business in Hong Kong. How are you dealing with these types of saber rattling warnings and possibly even more than saber rattling, uh, particularly with with respect to China, where I know that you guys were planning to expand. Well, we continue to expand in China. It's our biggest, second biggest market globally. We've got about 400 hotels open, another 400 in the pipeline. I think we're helped a bit. Virtually the entirety of our footprint and pipeline are owned by Chinese owners. And so we are viewed a bit more as a, a Chinese company versus an American company in terms of the ownership of the assets there. Um, but again, we've got to navigate these complexities in 133 countries around the world. And it's really, I think, starts with being good corporate citizens. Best thing you ever did was restore the old King Cole mural at the St. Regis Hotel in New York. You don't have to restore it in Hong Kong. You have a St. Regis in Hong Kong that is an absolute palace. The reality is you've got to get fat cat bankers into that St. Regis in Hong Kong. How are you going to do that given the politics of Beijing? 
Well, it will certainly be a challenge. What's interesting is at least through the pandemic, given the condition of borders in China, um, China is relying almost entirely on domestic demand. But when we look at corporate business travel in China in what do you March, see right now? we were 6% ahead of where we were in March of 19. So the volume is there, the pricing power is there, but the mix is different because it's largely domestic demand. Tony, what about globally? Are you starting to see global travel wax or wane given the increase in Delta variant around the world? It varies by market. One of the nice things about our business is we track and, and, and analyze the data in real time. When the EU came out with a fairly opaque statement about borders opening to international travel, we saw booking volume jump 40% in two weeks. When Greece came out with more specific details on what was gonna be required to enter the country, we immediately exceeded demand booking volumes from 2019. Then you shift to other parts of the world, countries like India that are still struggling mightily with the pandemic. We see really muted demand patterns. Honestly, I just actually traveled internationally and it was amazing to see how everyone felt like they were getting in just under the wire and they were all checking the news to see oh, what additional restrictions might be in place on the way back. If things were different, including the number of times a housekeeper would come into your hotel room to change the towels, the concern about being in the same room at the same time, buffets that would not be be out there for you to take the way that they previously were. How much of this is going to be the new normal going forward? I think there will be changes we've made that will endure through the pan beyond the pandemic. Some of the contactless technology we've put in place, the ability to check in, check out on the app, chat with the hotel staff through your device. We've got mobile key and more than 4,000 hotels around the world. I think a lot of that will continue. Things like housekeeping, how we deliver food and beverage service will evolve on a market by market basis. If you were in China today, the buffet which are so popular, they're back. Uh, I look at Goldman Sachs arguing about raising pay of junior bankers. Do you have to raise the pay of your line employees because of employers like Amazon competing at a lower wage and an all-in benefit package? In some markets, absolutely. In Am Jeff Amazon and Jesse and Bezos, they're affecting your base wage. I think they're affecting to me, this the is entirety of the travel flow. and tourism. Yeah. How are Absolutely. they doing it? What is, what is Amazon doing in a juggernaut to affect your employee pay structure? I think their entry level wage rates are putting pressure on wage rates in certain markets. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think one of the things we're wrestling with a bit the, the employment market at large has often viewed travel and tourism as a bit of a safe harbor industry. Right. And I think some of that confidence has been rattled a bit. Mm -hmm. When you look at global occupancies dropping down into the low teens right. at the outset of the pandemic, all of the travel and tourism companies had to make heart-wrenching decisions mm -hmm. around furloughs and job eliminations. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got to do a lot of work to restore confidence that this is an industry okay. that you can build a long-term career. Get to work. I need a $25 lobster roll. And all right. right. <laughs> coast to coast. Tony Capuano with us, their chief executive Thank officer, you. arguably the CEO of the year on the death of Ernie Sorensen as well. Ken Leon with us. And I do want to say, folks, and it's just an opinion, but when we look at four, five, six, seven banks, the chart presentation of Bank of America in the heat of an earnings release is absolutely best in class. There's no other way uh, to put it. Ken Leon with us with CFRA. Ken, Brian Moynihan has the courage to put the efficiency ratio up in a gorgeous chart. 
Before the pandemic, the number was a brilliant 60%. After the pandemic and in the pandemic, it's not. Do you have a belief that the banks can get back to the constructive efficiency ratios of the past, or is that days gone by? It's only for the problem banks where the efficiency ratios will stay elevated, and that would be perhaps Citigroup and Wells Fargo. But for Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, the answer is yes. And then you got to look at what is the efficiency. Um, it's essentially in how they operate. And with their investments in digital and technology, yeah. it en- enables them to improve that ratio. So it's a simple ratio that captures their whole business. Um, it's kind of a second derivative for analysts as, as we look at what is performance. I see a moonshot on the chart, Ken Leon, and it's what John Farrow is talking about. We're using digital. We're using our phones. The Zelle, Z-E-L-L-E, folks, we all move money around to our kids on it. Um, Ken Leon, what does Zelle mean for Brian Moynihan, James Diamond, and the rest? Just up, up we go in cell phone payments. You want to definitely be a player and take advantage of how society is changing behavior, how they shop and how they spend. But don't get distracted, and I don't think Brian Moynihan and management is at Bank of America, that a physical presence will help them now for the delayed rebound of the consumer for banking and small business, small business loans. They come to a local branch or to a financial center. So we're also seeing market share gain um, of the large banks in even the top 100 Mark, metropolitan markets in the U.S. So it's, it's kind of a boring strategy, but incrementally that's going to help them, especially when we see a pickup in loan activity. Unfortunately, Tom, I think that's with confidence in 2022, not for Q3 of this year. And maybe we get a glimpse of that later this year in Does Q4. that come down to what's happened on the fiscal side, Ken, for you to get a decent read on what's happening with loan growth? I, you know, I, so much... Of the, of the catalyst here for, for loan growth is really the consumer. It's not commercial or corporate. They're flush with cash. They have access in the U.S. market to the capital markets, and we saw that in fixed income underwriting. But, you know, for the consumer, it's you look at the Fed data across many metrics, household savings, the ratio of, of debt uh, relative to their to their income, and they're at record lows. So yeah. it might be, yeah, we got technology going, but the consumer is more conservative. It's like coming out of the depression of the 30s or the financial crisis. They're saying, we're going to pay our bills, and we're not going to let these credit card balances rise as much as they can. That's a big story as we go into the next quarter because we're going to see if that's really true. The big distinction there, of course, they've come out of this one on aggregate wealthier not poorer. That is the big distinction this time around. I know Alison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence, you as well, Lisa, have written about this in the last 24 hours, that distinction between Main Street and Wall Street, companies and consumers, and how that cash is being deployed. The idea here that you can bet more reliably, and that's what we're seeing in the stock price, on banking, on mergers and acquisitions, deal-making, other types of financial markets activity than for consumers to be profligate with their spending. Ken, going forward, can we continue to rely? Can investors continue to rely on the banking activity to support any lag in lending until that picks back up? The banks are, are strong. The balance sheets are incredibly at 
great levels and return of capital. So I think for the consumer, the banks are solid, and for the investor, uh, there's return of capital. We had substantial increases of dividend and buyback they could do after the Federal Reserve stress test. And keep in mind, the whole battle here, again, is after capturing wallet share of consumer spending. But we didn't talk about today uh, the strong results of the asset management and wealth management businesses here today for Bank of America, but all the large banks. Uh, and this is great because this drives for investors confidence on recurring revenue and cash flow. Ken Leon of CFRA. Thank you, sir. Ken Lee on there, wank in on these numbers. Let's bring in David George, Robert W. Baird, Senior Research Analyst for U.S. Banks. David, your first take on the numbers, please. I think overall, uh, John, it's, it's great to be here. I think the numbers overall were pretty good and continue to, re to reflect uh, an improving economy, and that's evident in, in activity levels as well as a very strong credit quality really across the board. So, David, when we take a look at these numbers, one thing that has pocked all of bank earnings has been the lack of loan growth. And I'm wondering, to the extent that there is loan growth, it has come among the wealthier individuals. How much is that sort of key point here, that wealthier individuals are borrowing versus their assets so that they don't have to liquidate portfolios that are currently invested in equity markets? Yeah, we've seen that. Uh, it's a great point. We've seen fairly significant growth, um, Lisa, in uh, what I would call securities-based loans. And, and as you as you refer to, wealthy individuals basically using their stock portfolios and, and wealth portfolios to uh, to use uh, debt for other purposes, uh, could be to buy a home or, or other or other uh, measures. So we're also seeing a pickup in credit card growth. So J.P. Morgan yesterday had eight percent card growth and we've seen uh, the card stocks react pretty positively but other than that loan demand loan demand continues to be pretty soft david george i want you to parachute in mckinsey or bain or the other great thinkers out five years which of these banks is best positioned for five years out um, I, I really think that the industry, uh, Tom, I'm trying not to make any big uh, headlines. I, I think that the industry in many ways is as in good a shape as it's ever been, particularly from a risk perspective. I think that the, the regulatory framework of the CCAR has made many of these companies, and I say this as a positive, very utility-like in nature with respect to the predictability of their revenues, predictability of their earnings, and the general um, lower risk um, perspective of these business models. They've all got a ton of capital, significant excess liquidity. And we've obviously, uh, this industry has been part of the solution to the pandemic uh, rather than the problem like it was, uh, as you know, Tom, in the 0809 timeframe. David, what do you make of this argument that the consumer is really strong coming out of this pandemic, coming out of this crisis this time, but that's going to generate some rewards when it comes to loan growth further down the road. Do you buy into that? I do. I, I, I'm a little worried that, that consensus expectations for loan growth are overly optimistic. The, the, we, I continue to get questions from investors and, 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 and the like about that lack of loan growth. And the story really is deposit growth. So Bank of America, as an example, had 14% deposit growth. And B of A's got over $2 trillion in deposits with a T. So th there is significant deposits coming into the system. So it's simply not intuitive uh, from our perspective to expect a lot of loan growth until you see deposits start to leave the system. Once we get some sense on that, then I think you'll see loan growth improve. Now, on the corporate side, I think supply chain disruptions are definitely playing a role because companies simply can't get inventory. So I do think you'll see a small step function higher once the, once some of those um, 
supply chain issues become uh, resolved. But but it, but in the meantime, I think it's going to be pretty slow going. David, can you build on this idea of deposits increasing at such a quick pace, given that people have been expending so much spending? Is there an incoherence here in the fact that people are still stashing so much away in their savings? Well, um, it's a great question. I think part of it is just simply the government crowding out the banks. A lot of this deposit uh, growth is simply government stimulus money finding its way into uh, into bank accounts. And um, I I don't really see uh, um, that changing much in the near term. Now, I think in 2022, we should see loan growth start to get better. Uh, but it's not going to be nearly as strong a growth as maybe what we've gotten accustomed to over the last 20 to 25 years. Do we have to give them the toaster to take our deposits now? <laughs> is that the future? That's is actually, that this is John, going? that's a really, really sophisticated question. Are we giving, Seriously. Are we giving them the toaster? Do we have to pay The toaster's the called accounts? John the toaster. David, this is really important, John. David, a firm and square, they're the toaster. Is a firm in those people changing the debate? What's the fear level on modern fintech for these bankers? Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. I, I think that that the um, the industry these these behemoth banks continue to be infringed upon really from all angles. And you you mentioned obviously some of the the uh, the fintech companies of the firm and the, and the like. And and I think that's going to continue. Um, where banks really differentiate themselves, from my perspective. Um, as a longtime bank analyst, seeing a lot of different cycles is their ability to underwrite risk as well as their funding. They've got all of the same products that these fintech monoline companies, but also have, we think, much more sophisticated credit modeling capability, scale, and funding. David, love catching up with you in earnings season. It's good to see you. Great. David Likewise. Josh there, Thank Robert you. W. Baird, Senior Research Analyst <clears throat> on the U.S. Banks. Steve Major, HSBC, Global Head of Fixed Income Research, joins us, and I'm pleased to say he's going to be with us for the next five, ten minutes. Steve, I want to start there with a provocative question, if I may. Do you think we might have already seen the peak in this yield curve for this cycle? Yeah, I think we saw the peak of yields um, at the end of March, John. And uh, what's happened since then is, is the market just repricing to the reality uh, rates aren't going up anytime soon. Uh, to me, I, I wonder what's happened to the 2% and, and, and above consensus forecast. Because to me, to me that wasn't particularly robust uh, in the first place. So, so, so I, I think that there could be a scrambling of people's forecasts, as right. you have seen some people scramble to cover their shorts. So, you know, uh, pushed... Uh, if yields are going to move towards 1% or 2% through the rest of the year, uh, I go for one. Steve Major, we've got an awful large audience of listeners and viewers that don't have a CFA. They didn't study Fabozzi cover to cover like you did. And they're going, wait a minute, debt up, debt up ever, ever higher. And as you brilliantly show, yields continue to fall. That is the arch conundrum. How can that be? Well, first of all, the last 20 years have seen that association of higher debt and lower yield in place. Now, of course, the correlation is not causality. To go to causality, you need to think, need to think about the debt servicing channel. And that's the cash payments that have to go towards servicing the debt. The simple point, Tom, is we cannot afford higher rates. 
And it's very, very unlikely that we will reach the height of the last cycle. Now, that, that seems to me to be more important than the date of the liftoff. It's, it's the destiny that really matters, uh, not the departure. Stephen, how much does this rely on an ever easy Federal Reserve versus just the dynamics natural in the economy? Well, look, the, the Fed's easy in several ways with forward guidance and the QE and the interest rate that it sets. And, and that sets up a bit of a trap because it's very, very difficult to unwind all of this. So the, so the debt stock is huge globally. The interest rates are low and there is QE, et cetera. So it's going to take a long time. Think about a super tanker uh, turning around the, the Cape of Good Hope. I mean, it looks to, it looks to me it's going to take a very long time. And, and, and that speaks to today's testimony. I mean, at best, you might get an iterative shift uh, at some point, but it, it, nothing dramatic is going to happen today. It can't. Steve, a lot of conversation about the reaction function over at the Federal Reserve. Let's talk about the reaction function of the market participant to data. Yesterday morning got a lot of attention from a lot of people. It wasn't just the CPI print. It was how the market responded to the CPI print. Didn't last too long because, as you know, we had a messy 30-year issue a little bit later in the afternoon that changed things up. But your read, just in that period, those several hours after that inflation print, what did that tell you? Well, I, I think the market is displaying a sort of Pavlovian response to all of this in that it knows that if the probability of rates going up is to increase, as it seemed to have done at the June FOMC, then equally the probability of reaching the heights of the last, of the last cycle are also going down. So, 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 so to me, um, the earlier they hike, the, the less room they have to go up. They'll have to stop earlier. And, and, and I think that that's how the market is now understanding the Fed's reaction function. Uh, they have this flexible average inflation targeting, but they've sort of chopped off the right tail mm -hmm. by indicating that, that they, may, they, they may hike into 2023. Steve Manager, if we have a boom economy, whatever the numbers are, say Goldman Sachs is far apart more optimistic than capital economics, which is more cautious, HSBC doing their own work as well. If we have a truly boom economy, can yields go up with a boom GDP and everyone remains happy? Uh, very unlikely that yields are going to go up, even with strong growth. If you, if you get a 6% growth this year, you have to weigh it against the minus two from last year. So the average is plus two. And look, uh, as your show has been pointing out, real yields have been falling because they are the shock absorber that comes through. Nominal yields are being controlled. If inflation expectations and risk premium rise, the real yield can only go down. Uh, that's, all, that's all that's happening. Stephen, if you see that uh, bond yields can remain low while this is a boom economy, does that mean that bonds have lost their signaling power, that they don't have the same kind of predictive view on the economy that they've traditionally had? Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a, a, a deeply involved, complex question. And I, I would say that when yields were down at 50 basis points last year, they, they lost a lot of that signaling. And also they lost the diversification benefit. But when we're at 140 or so, then, then uh, there are investors who will buy long bonds. Long, long bonds anywhere near 2% uh, offer ballast in a portfolio. So in terms of signaling, I think maybe, maybe people are over interpreting what, what the yield and the yield curve means. 
because look, we've had a decade or, or more of QE and unconventional monetary policy. Well, of course, some, some of the stuff from the 70s and 80s, that does, doesn't really apply to today's economy and bond market. So Steve, just a final question from me, if I may. You and I have known each other a long, long time, and I know that you've been right more than you've been wrong on this bond market. Someone just reached out to me and said exactly that, and they asked the question, what would it take for the 2% crowd to be right? What would it take ultimately for you to be wrong and the 2% crowd to be right? What do you think would need to happen? Well, there needs to be something more durable on the, on the employment and, and wages side. And I think that this is where the Fed is very inclusive. And, it, and in, in answering the questions, I'm, I'm sure that Chair Powell will, will point to that. The Fed is helping uh, ordinary people by getting them back to work. We're a long way from seeing durable increases in wages that that might change the inflation outlook um so i I would i would put that as one of the risks i guess you could have personnel changes that we're not predicting uh in the in the next year or so so you know personnel changes at the fed um i'm not really sure how 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 problematic that will be but you know the point is there are always uh, uh tail risks to the forecast but we're, but we're trying to take that into account there's also a risk that yields go much lower by the way steve major on the bond market steve just in terms of personnel changes just quickly the coaching staff for the english football team do we need some changes there too do we need to make a bit of an adjustment there there's been success we got to the final Let's think about the positives, John. I'm happy to do the positives. I just didn't know if you would do that after talking about the bond market so negatively for so long and what's happening with the broader economy. (laughs) Steve, it's good to see you. It's good to catch up. As always, HSBC Global Head of Fixed Income Research on this bond market. Always fantastic to catch up with Steve Major, Tom, and it always gets such a fantastic reception too. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.